The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Allison Cohen. She is the coordinator of the National Right to Food Community of Practice. She has dedicated her professional life working for food and farm justice with 30 years experience supporting grassroots-led organizations in rural and urban communities around the world that address the root causes of hunger. She also investigates the inequities of poverty at the intersection of hunger, agriculture, racism, health, human rights, and climate change. Ms. Cohen was Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger from 2009 to 2021, and prior to that, she worked for Heifer International, where she organized more than two dozen groups of farm families into food-producing cooperatives and 20-plus neighbors and youth to start urban farms throughout the Midwest and the Northeast. Currently, she is coordinating a collaborative process to build a national movement for the right to food. The National Right to Food Community of Practice is a coalition of state-level advocates using the right to food as a narrative change and policy tool. And since 2020, they have secured the first ever constitutional amendment for the right to food in Maine. Welcome, Allison. What a pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, you have a master's in sociology from Virginia Tech, and I wonder how your education led you to want to focus on hunger. Well, it's actually a bit of a circuitous route. I wanted to study sociology in order to really understand the ways in which women, particularly in Africa, were being impacted by USAID policies. And long story short, the funding that I had to go to Burkina Faso and study and write my thesis fell through at the end. And so I turned my attention towards women in agriculture in the United States, particularly in the Midwest. And that really just ignited this fire in me to understand the ways in which our food system was constructed primarily at the expense of millions of people in this country and millions of people around the world, and to understand the role that local food and farming systems could play in ending hunger at its root causes. So really understanding poverty is the root cause of that. So it's a longer story, (laughs) but that's a little bit of the circuitous route that I wanted to really work on women's issues in West Africa, which is where I had a lot of passion. And it led me directly back to my own country. What was it about USAID that concerned you? Primarily, I was looking at their work in agricultural communities and who they were providing the training to. And that was predominantly men who were not the ones in the fields actually doing the labor. 
And so that was a piece of it, really looking at the access to training through a gender lens. And along the way, what I discovered is that so much of our aid, our foreign aid, is actually rather self-serving. It comes from a, on the surface, a really a place, I think, of perceived generosity. And in fact, a majority of the foreign aid that we provide comes back to us in terms of either benefits such as opening up markets in developing countries and or requirements that the food is bought here from our surplus in the U.S. before it's provided. And even the shipping is our own U.S.-based ship. So I'm not an expert in that area, but that was a, a piece that that I began to to understand that aid wasn't always aid. Right. That, in fact, it it was often a part of an economic paradigm that, that we embraced here in this country. That is so interesting. And it really ties into some of the points you made in an excellent op-ed. You wrote this shortly after the White House conference on nutrition and health and hunger. And you mentioned there that really around the table, the folks who should be contributing insights and policy influence around hunger, nutrition, and health really should be the people most affected. And you point out that while several agencies drafted the plan, the loudest voices might be the very corporations that profit from overproduction, waste, and low wages in the food system. Yes, exactly. The various actors within the National Right to Food Community Practice were very concerned. And we all spent the day together watching the White House Conference on Hunger since we couldn't get physical access to it and began to have conversations during the day about what it was that we felt was missing, what was really absent. And that was our conclusion, really, is that increasingly, and it was very visible, I think, in this conference, that we're allowing corporations to shape policy in a way that even for in a way that is in their own self-interest and is, in fact, what we would like to see are the people most impacted at the table shaping policy. And that was what sort of initiated this op-ed and really wanting to get it placed, particularly in West Virginia, because Delegate Daniel Walker, who has put forward a piece of legislation to codify the right to food in the state amendment there, was up for re-election. So this was an opportunity to say, this is a local issue, but it requires a national platform. And that's what we saw in Maine as well, is that we really needed to have that national groundswell of support and energy to get it across the finish line. Well, I had never heard of or been aware of any amendments that would ensure a right to food. What does that look like exactly? Right. So it's interesting. We had a hand in the U.S. had a hand under Eleanor Roosevelt, really, and, and the four freedoms in drafting the Freedom from Hunger Act, which then became the basis for the Declaration on Human Rights. And we have never as a country, we've declined to ratify the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. It's in that particular covenant that the right to food is housed. And again, we say we don't need it because we have enough existing social safety net protections and federal laws. And the market will help us to take care of the rest of it. 
So clearly that that hasn't happened. We've had hovered around 11%, give or take a percentage of hunger in this country for the past 25 years. So it's clearly not, we haven't gotten there yet. And I'm not even sure we really have the right tools in place to get there. So that being said, that's a really important backdrop for this work, I think, in the U.S. because we don't have a legal framework in our constitution that would protect the right to food. And the states can, in fact, amend their own constitutions to include a whole host of rights. And once you even get the right codified, as we now have in Maine, it's really just the scaffolding. And the real work for turning it into policy and having it really shape the way that food systems are developed starts now. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just another tool in the toolbox. The fascinating and for me really important piece around the right to food and why I was so drawn to it is that it necessarily requires that you really work towards a coordinated reform in food, agriculture, health, labor, the environment, that you really have to understand food as a key intersectional point in all of these different issues that are critical for having a healthy, dignified life. And second, that it really is about collective responses So we're trying to tackle the root causes of hunger and poverty long-term. And that means that we need to go beyond what in this country we think are the, that we've come to believe is the way to deal with hunger is through short-term emergency food access interventions, which in fact are no longer (laughs) short-term. They've really really become like food banks have become a de facto grocery store for folks that, that are working and still can't afford to put food on their tables. Exactly. And I want to get into that area of charitable giving. But before we move on to that, I want to go back to this Declaration on Human Rights. Because if we do codify it, as Maine did, if I'm understanding you correctly, that this could be a scaffolding for many policies, would that then lend that state to enact a living wage, for example? Yes, it could. It very much could. And it could also be a stepping stone towards uh, universal free school meals. It could be a stepping stone towards a living wage, as you said. It could also be a stepping stone towards, for Maine in particular, and this is where the, the desire to work towards the right to food in Maine came from, is that more than 90% of the food in the state of Maine, very agricultural, small state, but very with deep agricultural roots and lots of small farms, more than 90% of the food purchased and consumed in Maine by Mainers was coming from outside of the state. And so that was yeah. the, the the real impetus. So it could also then become a stepping stone towards fortifying local food economies. Oh, that's brilliant. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned that about Maine. I remember the very same statistic being said about the state of Iowa that is producing more corn and soy than is absolutely necessary. Right. And it's the same situation. That state with such fertile ground is importing over 90% of the food that people attempt to put on their tables. And in fact, in this country, overall, generally, we produce more crops for fuel than we do for food. Wow. And then there's also export, I wonder. Yeah. All right. 
there are so many parts of your op-ed that I really want to dive into. And you had mentioned one and I wanted to get back to it. And that has to do with the way we feel good about ourselves when we do canned food drives and Mm -hmm. we give to the needy. I've often wondered what it felt like to be in the shoes of those people who are receiving those boxes of charitable food items. Because I think it would seem that a person would lose their sense of dignity if they couldn't purchase their own food and if they were dependent on a handout. I don't think that's where human nature really wants to be, but you would understand that more. Well, this is uh, the work that I've been engaged with from what I have seen and experienced firsthand is that folks do not want to use a food pantry or a food bank. That is not a typically a dignified way to access food. And we know that almost 50%, according to Feeding America, almost 50% of folks that use a food bank on a regular basis have at least one full-time working adult in the household. And so we're in a situation where it's very, very clear that it's poverty that's at the root cause of hunger and no amount of free food is going to address that poverty as, as a root cause. And yet... From the age of, I don't know, four or five, I think we can all remember in, you know, going to church as a child or going to almost any public institution, school, that there was always around the holidays a food drive. So we were taught from age five, it was very normalized that when people need food, you go to your own kitchen pantry and you bring cans of food and you give it to the folks who need it. And that has been our model in this country, the predominant mainstream model, charitable food provision is the mainstream model for dealing with the issue of hunger in this country. And what we've seen more and more is at all food banks, you walk into a food banks and there is an incredible cult of the volunteer. It's all thank you to the volunteers and here's stars all across the wall and every star is written the name of someone who's come and helped pack food. And Jan Poppendick, who's a a friend and mentor, coined this phrase that charitable giving is essentially a moral safety valve. And so when we need to feel good, we can release that valve a little bit. We can provide some food or some money directly to a food bank. And we feel in some ways like we've done we've done a good deed and that makes us feel good and it makes us feel morally connected or morally buffeted somehow. And it's certainly more more nuanced and complicated than that, but that is something that we've seen many charitable organizations really lean into, right? Mm-hmm. Is in order to raise money. I want to be really clear that I do not think food banks in and of themselves or food pantries in and of themselves are are unnecessary or bad, for lack of a better word, institutions in our country. Unfortunately, we really need them. And they do a lot of really important work with not enough resources. And that's clear to me. And what the right to food community practice would like to see happen is food banks and food pantries beginning to really work towards understanding their role in perpetuating an emergency food system. And some of that is that they are, in fact, taking a lot of money and even more food donations from the very corporations that are not paying their workers enough, such that their workers then wind up going 
to the food pantry. And that is one example of the ways in which by not questioning the system itself and not saying, well, we've got to taking food from bad food from a bad food system doesn't change anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so we know, for instance, and I think I wrote about this in the op-ed piece that nearly half a million Kroger employees report being unable to pay monthly bills. The average Kroger grocery stocker salary in West Virginia alone is $25,000, which is a poverty wage for anyone in that state but a single adult. So we've got this major national grocery retailer and its workforce is forced to find alternative means of putting food on their family's table. And so fighting for better wages to me, seems like a really important and critical fight that food pantries themselves should be in. I agree. Allison, let me take one break because I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Allison Cohen. She is coordinator of the National Right to Food Community of Practice. She has dedicated her professional life working for food and farm justice. Okay, I want to continue our discussion of Kroger because I know that people, one of their top of mind issues going into the new year is the cost of food. And there are a lot of people wanting to blame certain politicians for this. But I think we need to step back and you bring this forth very clearly that Kroger's stock has risen by nearly 36% over the past year. And the CEO makes $18 million annually. So while people are struggling to pay for food at increasing prices, one really should look closely at what stock prices are doing and what the CEOs of these corporations are making. And why isn't Kroger paying a living wage? And why are they at the table when it comes to influencing policy on hunger, food, and nutrition? Sure. So I don't think I want to let the politicians off the hook, though, Okay. Um, because part of the reason why corporations are continuing to act in this way is because they're not being held accountable right. by our politicians. So, for instance, corporations have rights that individuals don't have. They have rights through Citizens United. It protects their freedom to formulate foods that cause addiction behaviors, protects the freedom to market unhealthy food to children. So there's a lot in our current political climate and the state of rights in this country that really is supporting the kinds of, or at least preventing or not requiring that corporations like Kroger do the right thing. And mm -hmm. so I don't want to completely let our elected officials off the hook. And we live in a kind of Western style capitalistic economy, a society that supports that kind of an economy. And in that kind of an economy, food corporations answer to their stockholders. And so their priority is on ensuring financial returns. And what are the ways that they can do that? paying lower wages and or producing highly processed foods that tend to uh, bring in higher profits. And so there's, you know, that's sort of embedded in the economic system that we've continued to 
perfect, for lack of a better word, in this country. So that's, you know, that's a big part of it. Could Kroger, as an independent company, could make the right decision. They could do the right thing. They could pay living wages and they would be fine as a company. Right. And they don't do it. So yes, that is on them. And it is on our elected officials for not building enough power to change that system. I agree with you. And I'm really glad you brought up Citizens United. It's a very important issue that we all as citizens should be looking at. I want to talk about Kroger. I know that they are looking to merge with Albertsons. That's just another symptom of a problem when we have so much consolidation in these different industries. But what I have noticed probably within the last several years is heightened interest in this issue of zero waste. And it's very important that we focus on zero waste. I mean, it is a true sin to waste resources and food. But I like the way you mentioned that what we must do if we really want to solve the hunger problem and have justice is to stop conflating zero waste with zero hunger. So I didn't really understand how this all worked, but companies that donate their food waste, their excesses, they do that in exchange for tax credits and, as you mentioned, public goodwill. So bringing Kroger up again, last year Kroger invested $18 million to strengthen food banks' capacity to redistribute their waste to hungry people. You write that such acts are celebrated but it's the food charities across our state that do the hard work of nourishing working families. And they ultimately are supporting the profits of a food sector that keeps wages low. Yes. We're seeing this more and more in the branding and the marketing of food banks and other charitable organizations. And it's an easy narrative. It's sort of a narrative it's hard to argue with, that there's extra food and there are people who need it. So let's put them together. It's hard to argue with that. And I don't think that in and of itself as a notion is wrong. What I think is problematic is that we don't need to be overproducing food in the way that we are and that there is advantages to food corporations that do overproduce. And in fact, a big part of our farm bill goes exactly towards enabling and encouraging corporations to overproduce. So Kroger itself has a big zero hunger, zero waste initiative. They want to end hunger. They say, quote unquote, we have a commitment to end hunger in our communities and eliminate waste across our company by 2025. And the way they're going to do that is by taking their intentionally produced food waste and giving it to food banks to redistribute to people who need it many of whom are their own employees, right? Right. It's the same way with Walmart and Tyson and PepsiCo, all companies that provide millions of dollars annually to charitable food programs, but really lobby against having fair living wages. They often cut union positions or they'll keep workers at part-time status. I don't know how many people at these big corporate food producers have access, for example, to healthcare. So it's all connected, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think you can also then throw in climate change into that whole complex and interdependent issues. So we know, for instance, that food waste in the USA accounts for about a quarter of all freshwater consumption. 
and that it also accounts for the consumption of 300 million barrels of oil a year. So that in and of itself is an indication of the ways in which food waste contributes to climate change and to environmental destruction. We also know that food that winds up in the landfill, of course, contributes to methane emissions and a lot of methane emissions, actually. And so we don't want that good food to wind up in the in the landfill either. And we don't need to be overproducing. And I think we need to keep coming back to that particular issue is what's at the root cause of why our food and farm system overproduces? And how does that distract us from really working and understand, first of all, understanding and then working at the root causes of hunger, which again is really poverty. And when you start looking at, okay, what are the root causes of poverty? Why do we have poverty? There is a tremendous amount of of data and experience that points to racial discrimination, racial injustice. And so I think, too, that's another issue. We could do an entire show on that. And, and there are many people more well qualified to do that than I am. But I think it's really important to name that as well. Allison, we just have a couple of minutes left, and you've had such an impressive work history. I want to give a couple of minutes to you for you to bring forth anything that you want our listeners to know. I want to lift up three different important points that I I hope folks walk away with, and maybe we'll do some of their own investigation around. First is that We still have hunger in this country because we still embrace old ideas of why people are poor and hungry. And in doing so, that perpetuates the wrong solutions. It's a false narrative that our current dominant economic paradigm will create opportunities for everyone to pull themselves up and out of poverty. The second is that a corporate controlled food system, which is what we have, ensures industry profit and not necessarily healthy people. As I said earlier, we grow more fuel than food in this country. And of course, corporations are allowed to externalize their costs in ways that undercompensate farmers. That's a problem. The third and perhaps the most controversial is that reliance on philanthropy and charity food really distracts us from addressing the root causes of hunger. So the act of recovering food and giving it to people in need is very important in this day and age, but it also prevents us from really exploring and understanding and seeking to end hunger at its roots, dealing with issues of poverty. Really good food for thought as we enter the new year. You identify yourself as an organizer, weaver, and connector. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, and this is where I think so much of the real power to bring about change lies, it is in bringing people, ideas, and actions together that are often siloed, but bringing them together and helping to knit them together into a new fabric that wouldn't have existed before. So I think of it metaphorically, and I think that's something that I love to do. It's a real passion of mine is pulling out these various threads, bringing them together, re-knitting them into something that can build power and really affect change. 
that is absolutely beautiful. Thank you for that. We need to close because we're out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Allison Cohen, coordinator of the National Right to Food Community of Practice. Allison, I will provide a link to the excellent op-ed that you wrote so that people can think more deeply about some of the critical issues you raised. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.